I'm conductor and creator Timothy Myers, and I can't stop chasing the question, what would the world look like with more listening? This is Listening on Purpose. Hello, dear listeners. This is Tim. Welcome to the podcast. What you're about to hear today was recorded live in front of an audience, which makes this episode a special departure from our typical format. But this conversation was so important and insightful that we decided we had to share it with you. As most of you probably know, I'm a conductor working with symphony orchestras and opera houses around the world. But my primary artistic home is Austin Opera, where I am the principal conductor. And as part of my work in Austin, I lead a series called Conductor Cues. This is a series that is centered around our upcoming productions, where in front of a live audience, I talk about various aspects of that production, that opera. Uh, it's often interspersed with musical performances, interviews with other colleagues, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And this conductor cues from a couple of weeks ago was one of our most unique yet. Our upcoming production is Bizet's The Pearl Fishers. Yes, that Bizet who wrote Carmen. And The Pearl Fishers is set in Sri Lanka. Now, as our world has become more interconnected than ever, there has been a movement to examine the way that we tell these stories that are set in what at least at that time in the mid-19th century, would have been considered exotic locales. And now that we know more about the rest of the world than has ever been possible before, there's opportunity to be sure we're telling these stories with as much authenticity and respect for that culture as possible. Now, naturally, these conversations can sometimes be a little sensitive and definitely require some vulnerability on the part of all the participants, especially in front of a live audience. These conversations also often revolve around things we don't always define before we start the conversation. Terms like cultural appropriation, orientalism, and exoticism. What exactly do these things mean, and why are these conversations important? I hope this episode sheds some light on that for you. Without further ado, here's my conversation with dancer and choreographer Anu Naimpali and stage director Allison Moritz, recorded live at the beautiful KMFA studio in Austin, Texas. A big thank you to KMFA and a major thank you to the team at Austin Opera for letting me share this conversation with you. Enjoy, and I can't wait to hear what you think. Welcome to KMFA and to Conductor Cues. My name is Timothy Myers. I am the Sarah and Ernest Butler Principal Conductor and Artistic Advisor at Austin Opera. And this is one of my favorite events to do because I get to nerd out about this 400-year-old art form with some people who also want to nerd out about a 400-year-old art form, which is you know, not common on the street in really any place except maybe Paris or Vienna. We have a really wonderful conversation tonight that's going to take an interesting direction. Before we go that direction, though, I, I want to talk about the piece and its composer a little bit. Georges Bizet was not yet 25 when he penned the Pearl Fishers, and he was a recent winner of the Prix de Rome, which was a scholarship bursary that had been established by Louis XIV. And this bursary allowed them to stay in Rome for three years at the expense of the state to expand their skills and see culture outside of France and to work with various teachers on various elements of their craft, et cetera, et cetera. Previous winners of this prize had included Berlioz, no, Later winners would include Jules Massenet and Claude Debussy. So this is a very prestigious prize. He won it at a very young age and made great use of the time. And what's astonishing to me about the Pearl Fishers is that he penned it 10 years before he would write Carmen. And already at that age, he was showing a magnificent gift as a melodist, an orchestrator, with a penchant for high drama, and a great ability to set an environment to create a soundscape that can tell a story without any words and already create this beautiful environment that really gives us a platform on which to do the storytelling. Now, the libretto 
of pearl fishers is commonly criticized as being flawed, as is some of the storyline. And my, my retort to that is always, well, it is opera. Yeah. Um, <laughs> have you ever heard of a piece called Il Trovatore? I, you know, what, baby on a fire? And a, what, I, okay. Um, but uh, it, we did have a couple well-known librettists on the, on the project, um, Eugene Cormont and Michel Carré, who were both experienced um, both as playwrights, especially Carré as a librettist, um, right, for Faust, for example, Gounod's Faust. And the, though the libretto is frequently criticized, what's funny is that Cormont did uh, um, eventually admit that had they known that Bizet was such a gifted young composer, they would have worked harder to give him a little something better to work with. <laughs> Pearl Fishers was premiered in September of 1863 at the Théâtre Lyrique in Paris and was well received by an enthusiastic audience. The critics, not so much. And this is something that, that Bizet struggled with throughout his life. In fact, the critical reception of Carmen was disastrous. People thought it was too violent. And here, they just didn't want to give a young composer a break. Yeah, and the critics were all looking for the flaws, even though there were people like Berlioz who went and were like, yeah, this thing has legs, this guy knows what he's doing. A lot of people still couldn't get around it. It ran for 13 performances, and unfortunately, those were the only performances that took place in his lifetime. He died at 36, 35, 36, 10 years later, about three months after the premiere of Carmen. So it's come back into the repertoire in a strong way now, there are many modern productions going on, not a lot of them available for us to use, and you'll hear more about that later. But to shift a little bit and give another lens for the conversation tonight, I wanna to just talk about something we call performance practice. And this is something that as artists, as musicians, that we talk about when we're thinking about how a piece is performed. And as you can imagine, classical music having the several hundred year lineage that it has, that has evolved over many years. And in fact, sometimes involves over just simply decades. And so this is why we have orchestras like the Age of Enlightenment Orchestra that's really about Baroque and early classical performance practice. It's a specific thing. They use instruments that are built the way instruments were then. They use gut strings, not metal strings. They use certain types of bows, right? To kind of try and recreate this sound. We talk about this in opera too, in vocal technique. For example, did you know that even during Wagner's time, vibrato was an expressive thing only for use in specific circumstances in the singing voice? That's the exact opposite of how we treat vocal technique now and have for, for really since the early 20th century, right? Now, actually, we consider all healthy singing to have vibrato and that if you actually sing straight tone, that that's a very expressive device that you might choose to use to emphasize something in particular. So these things evolve greatly. Now, for me, this is one of my favorite things to think about is when we have a piece that was premiered a couple hundred years ago, how are we looking at it now in the lens of 2023? A lot of these composers never heard their pieces performed at the level of execution, which is very common today. For example, Beethoven never heard, even before he started going deaf or after he was deaf, never heard, especially his later symphonies, performed by an orchestra that could really play them very well, right? And now this would be considered standard, you know, even, you know, high school orchestras, college orchestras that would play these things very, very well. And so there's always this tension, this question of, do we perform it how Beethoven would have done it? Or do we perform it how we can do it today? My philosophy as a conductor has always been, if Beethoven came back to life and was given the chance to drive a Ferrari or a Yugo, what do you think he would pick? <laughs> I think he would pick the Ferrari, okay? But it's interesting to know these things and to have, you know, in, in music school, they always talk about these things when you're taking composition lessons and you're writing counterpoint, you know, these chorales exactly in common practice, which was the style that Bach developed and, and, and that we use as the bedrock of Western music. And so you're writing these very specific things. And, they, and they, the teachers keep telling you, yes, you're writing these counterpoint exercises because it's important to learn the rules so that you can break them. Not a bad adage for a lot of things in life. As performance practice has evolved over many years, fortunately in opera, we've also started expanding the performance practice conversation to include 
discussion of the cultural ramifications of some pieces, which of course, as you would imagine, shifts over the course of many years. And in 1978, a famed scholar named Edward Said, who was very, very close to a, a conductor who's still living, Daniel Barenboim. They formed an academy called the Barenboim Said Academy in Berlin to improve East-West relationships. He coined a term called Orientalism and, and wrote about it at length in his book of the same name. And he was using this term to describe how the West has historically imagined the East. He did a lot of writing on the topic of Orientalism and music throughout his career. And a working definition of Orientalism could be the representation of Middle Eastern, Asian, and North African societies. Now, challengingly, sometimes this can bring up things that are stereotyped in a way that embodies a colonialist time, right? Which we're all aware of in, in our history and in the history of many countries, colonialism, imperialism, but what we want to do is look beyond these. Now, some of these stories, of course, access to these places can result in some misinterpretation because the stories are being told about people, not necessarily by the people through their lens. However, this does differ from something we call exoticism. Exoticism is the evocation of a culture different than that of a composer that serves an audience and audiences desire for novel experiences. That could probably describe an opera audience, correct? <laughs> yeah. And in this way, we see differences in the repertoire. For example, the way that Bizet and his librettists treated the Pearl Fishers versus the way Puccini treated Madama Butterfly, okay? Puccini did his due diligence as much as he could in that time. He befriended the wife of the Japanese ambassador to Rome and spent time learning the folk music, listening to a music box, you know, trying to understand what was happening culturally in a place where hardly anybody who would ever hear the opera would ever be able to go. So he was looking to make it as authentic of a thing as possible. Back to Pearl Fishers, well, uh, just, you know, on that, uh, another note was very interesting is I opened this season conducting Madama Butterfly at the Atlanta Opera, and we had a consultant who came and was with us for the production period who worked with us on Japanese culture, authentic culture. And it was really fascinating to see all of the things we've been getting wrong for years, including the way that Butterfly takes her own life at the end, which the way we've historically staged it in an opera was the way that a samurai warrior would do it, but never the way a woman would do it. So we're continuing to learn about a lot of these things. Back to Bizet, he was not in pursuit of something authentic. He and his collaborators were looking for the most un-French place possible, right? <laughs> something escapist to entertain those people looking for a novel experience, and one that, a place that most, if not all people, would never have a chance to visit themselves who might be in an audience. Also remember, at this time in Paris, there were a lot of things happening in the, in the opera performances that had nothing to do with opera, right? That might be doing business, having dinner behind that curtain that could draw around your box or something else. <laughs> um, so what's interesting about Pearl Fishers is it ended up being set in Sri Lanka. That was not the intention from the beginning. It was originally going to be set in Mexico. <laughs> same, right? Same. Totally the same, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, and, you know, it was hastily moved in location, and we don't know exactly why, but we think that at that point, Napoleon III had a conquest going in Mexico and it had some pretty embarrassing defeats. And so that, you know, it might not be good for a French opera house to premiere an opera, you know, in that country at that time. But operas being moved from location to location is not a super novel thing, right? This happens. Has anyone ever, ever seen the Verdi's A Masked Ball? Okay, where does that set? Well, right, it was supposed to be, but they moved the location at the very last minute to Boston, of all places, right? And again, this was to avoid censorship. 
because they didn't want to be, they didn't think they would be allowed to portray the assassination of a crowned person on a European stage. So there are various reasons why operas get moved from one location to another. We won't ever know exactly why Pearl Fishers got moved to Sri Lanka. Nonetheless, it did. Going back to what we were talking about, about context, now in an interconnected world where a lot of us have been to many other continents, many of us have been to 145 plus countries, <laughs> is now we know a lot more about these contexts and we can, we can find out a lot more that we never could have known before, understanding where we are in a diverse and interconnected 21st century. And to continue this conversation, I would like to introduce two collaborators. The first is Anu Naimpali. She is an Austin artistic icon. She's an acclaimed dancer, choreographer, collaborator, and educator. She is the artistic director of Austin Dance India, an organization that she founded in 1989 to connect the ancient arts of India to modern audiences. Pearl Fishers marks her Austin Opera debut. Please welcome Anu. Thank you. Our second guest is a prolific stage director who has directed at top opera companies in the United States, including several notable world premieres. Pearl Fishers is her third production at Austin Opera. Previously, she directed The Manchurian Candidate and most recently, La Boheme. Please welcome Allison. So I want to start this next phase of our conversation getting into detail about a production. And I want to start with you, Allison. Directing a piece like The Pearl Fishers Now is a very different endeavor than it was even 10, 20 years ago. Is that fair to say? I, I think it's fair to say that across the board, audiences expect more from visual culture and from acting because our culture is so visual now and we're in a kind of golden age of, of television and storytelling and on other platforms. And so our standard of like what, what drama and what realism look like is very much influenced by that. But I think within the cultural context, you know, I can only speak from my own perspective as as a, as a woman and someone who's been othered in some of these rooms. I think maybe the, the paint by numbers version of opera that really relied on the incredible musical values and charisma of some stellar singers, now we're expecting them to do so much more, to be stellar singers and consummate colleagues and actors. So I would say some of the conversations have changed because we're also reconsidering like what our public institutions, including our art institutions, have to say about people and humanity. What are we offering when we offer up opera and say, it's important to look at these stories? Well, if they're, if they're these kind of like jungle gyms for emotions and feelings, then who are we including in that? I think becomes a really interesting question. And acknowledging that historically not everyone has been included in these conversations, is I think not only like capital I important, but it's also, it makes really good art. It makes really good storytelling. So I think when we have these conversations about like widening the circle or incorporating new voices or coming from new perspectives, I like to think about it not as like a, like eat your vegetables kind of thing. We have to do it so that we're doing a good job or a good thing. Like we get to do it, we get, to include more people in these classical forms that you know, have, we have noted, dwindling audiences in some cases. And we also get to hear about other art forms that arose in parallel in these same golden ages of art and culture, which is really fascinating. Yeah, excellent point. I like how you talk about realism, right? But of course, the Verismo, period in opera, which is, you know, kind of centered around Puccini, is where we consider that, you know, there started to be real stories that people could relate to represented on stage. 
But now we're in a different version of realism, right? In that we're in, as you mentioned, we're in such a visual world and people are seeing imagery that we've never been able to see before and in, you know, in, in very vibrant ways, which makes it, which makes our job a little bit challenging, right? Yeah, it certainly kind of like broadens the palette, right? In that now we get to choose like when something is theatrical, what's satisfying about it being theatrical? There's sometimes like a magic in seeing like the fishing wire and kind of the paper moon hung because we know we know that it's a metaphor. It's not trying to trick us, it's trying to make us feel something. And I think this production is really beautiful in that it's not really taking us to a beach. It's immersing us in the, the colors and rhythms of like an incredible sunset rather than realistically transporting us to Sri Lanka. Mm. Say more about that and can you maybe talk a little bit more about the physical production itself that we're using? Sure. This is a beautiful production designed originally for San Diego Opera by Dame Zandra Rhodes. Dame Zandra Rhodes was a is an incredible, iconic designer. She has a sort of very famous hot pink bob haircut and was very influential in the, in the punk scene in the 1980s. And she is a prolific designer and collaborator and she worked as the costume and scenic designer for this beautiful production. It includes many of her signature vibrant patterns, vibrant colors. She collaborated with a wonderful stage director, Andrew Sinclair, who's unfortunately passed, and they, they created this sort of very almost balletic set in that it's a large vista of open sand, and there's a lot of room for the, the community drama of coming and going. So we basically have three kind of stark but um, shaped by lighting setups that are like a beach, a temple, and then Unfortunately, there's a giant storm and what happens to the beach after the intermission. So there's, there's, it's, it's what I would call like Zandra's style is a mix of impressionism in that it's like, it's all about what the eye can see as the whole picture and rather than always focusing on, in on any little moment, you get, you get these kind of like waves of sensations, almost like you would with a meditation in some of this music. And then there's also this expressionism because it's very much, it's all based on her own sketches. And so you'll, you'll kind of like see a brush stroke. It feels very active. And fantastical. Absolutely, way, right? yeah. yeah. Which I think is really nice because it doesn't purport to say like, oh, this is what Sri Lanka looked like in the year that Bizet was writing about it, you know? Or it doesn't sort of pin us down. And it's, it's interesting as a director because there are some operas that we know exactly when they're supposed to be. Puccini is a great example of this. Like, you can try to do Tosca outside of the era of Napoleon, but you're gonna have a lot of splaining to do. <laughs> you know? So Pearl Fishers is much more enigmatic in that it really is this kind of like story on the level of a fable where it could be it could be 150 years ago. It could also be 600 years ago. It's epic in that way, which I think is, um, I don't know, a rare pleasure to get to work on. It means my homework is very different, yeah. Right, but in a way, it, it, with this production, you have a, it's certainly not a blank canvas because there, there are a lot of strong things about it, visually, especially from a color standpoint. But in a way, as you mentioned, it's a fairly open set. There's a, it's, it's a lot of playground to work with. Yeah, absolutely. And so when I see this kind of large floor plan, I can see that obviously this is a, this is a set that was originally created for dance. So I was fortunate in that I worked on this production many moons ago in a different iteration of it at, at Seattle Opera and I assisted Andrew. And so I got to see him work. I met Sandra, I worked with her. And I also worked with the original choreographer of the piece, a man named John Malishok. And so this piece was originally created to feature John Malishok's contemporary dance. He had a sort of modern dance ensemble. They did a lot of very cool flame dances. It was beautiful. But it was very signature, I think, to the time and place of commissioning it, of commissioning those dances. And they existed as a sort of package for a very long time. 
until only the last few years. And then people sort of decided, well, we like this set, we like the way it evokes the colors of the orchestration, but people want to, other people want to play on the playground, maybe. Like, what, what do, we want to see what other people can do with this. So when Austin approached me and asked, like, about Pearl Fishers, I was excited because I know this set very well, and it felt like a real opportunity to re-examine what is the role of dance in this storytelling. Can we take some of what some people think are the flaws of the plot? It's not really a plot, it's a premise, right? <laughs> I've been miscategorizing it all no of this plot. time. There's, there's just a situation and then we untangle it. There's a tangled, there's a tangled thread and we've got it kind of, takes us, do no. we untangle it? I don't know. No, yeah. but we learn, <laughs> we learn an exercise in human frustration by trying. No, no, no. no we, we learn a lot. And, and so I thought, like, how can we actually address some of the challenges of plot and storytelling using an additional layer of narrative that is dance? And I thought, that is the real interesting opportunity here. So I asked if there were any, if there were any, Asian, Southeast Asian, Sri Lankan, like what potential collaborators we had in the Austin area to both bring this production that's been around the world closer to home by having local collaborators and also to bring it full circle in that part of the signature storytelling on stage becomes dance from the place where this is set. And we were incredibly lucky to find some amazing collaborators right here in Austin. Thank you for the beautiful segue. Yeah. <laughs> I knew. Hi. Very glad you're here. Glad to be here. You know, what's interesting about this is dance in a French opera is not an anomaly, right? Mm -hmm. Faust typically now is performed without the ballet music, but there is about 15 minutes, 18, 17, 18 minutes, somewhere in there of ballet music. Wagner, when he wanted Tannhäuser to be premiered, in Paris, wrote a ballet for it to be included. But what's fascinating about this situation is we're doing something very, very different, right? And so Anu has been on the team with us, and Anu, I want to talk about what we're doing in Pearl Fishers, but first I would like for our friends to learn more about you, the work that you're doing, so that, that we can see sort of how Pearl Fishers has expanded that. So could you give us, just a bit of your history in Indian dance culture and what you see in these things. And I know there's some fascinating connections between the head and the heart and the body and the spirit and all of these things. So I would love it if you could just give us a little bit of an overview about what you do and what brought you to that. Yeah, so my specialty is called Bharatanatyam and it's a southern Indian form of classical dance. There are several forms of classical dance around the subcontinent. So this was very much, you know, it developed with the aesthetics and values and norms of the southern culture. And so this form of dance was an integral part of the court tradition. Prior to independence, India was independent kingdoms. And so during that period, the kings were the great patrons of the arts, just as they were in, in Europe. And so the, the dance and music flourished in the courts. But these kings also erected large temples, and they were filled with music and dance as well, as a part of the daily rituals, as a part of uh, religious festivals, and so on. So the dance became not only a court tradition, but also a temple tradition. So it's closely linked with the spiritual and religious traditions, uh, and particularly the Hindu tradition. So there were artists that were dedicated to these, the practice of this art form, and they lived and worked within the temple system. After independence in 1947, this tradition actually prior to that, because of social and political reasons, it did fall under dis disrepute. And so the practitioners sort of went into hiding and the whole temple tradition sort of vanished slowly. 
But the art form continued, and now the venue and the purpose has changed. And when the venue changes, the purpose does change automatically. So it was in the temple as a part of the ritual worship, and now it's in the theater. And so entertainment has entered that purpose as well. And so when you have the deity in the temple as your audience versus a, a, a ticketed patron as your audience, your presentation will definitely change. So it has become much more virtuosic and you know there's lighting design, there's a whole team behind production. It becomes a production basically. But having said that, we still adhere very much to certain conventions and traditions that this, this form is steeped in. It's, it's impossible to separate that, in my opinion. And so originally, the pursuit of any classical art was also a, considered a spiritual pursuit. And so it's meant to lift the heart to a higher place, not only for the artist, but as the artist performs, to lift the audience also to a higher place. And so everyone experiences that higher level of consciousness in a beautiful way through the art form. So that's sort of the, the history of, aesthetically, the history of the, the form. It's really interesting to hear that and to think about how it, in a way, really parallels Western music evolution, right? From being something, you know, for entertainment of some, you know, someone higher and, and funded by them to, you know, becoming more and more in, engaged with the, the community. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if in Indian dance, and especially in the style in which you specialize, would you say there's a vernacular there? So if, if we think about Western ballet, for, for example, Sleeping Beauty's a narrative piece, right? Diaghilev's, you know, choreography for the Rite of Spring, not narrative, you know, angular, very, you know, expressive, but expressing something on a very, in a very different vernacular. How does that function in your specialty? Mm -hmm. So Bharatanatyam has basically three different aspects to it. So Natya is drama, the dramatic element. And so as a Bharatanatyam dancer, we're also trained in the acting element. And so we learn how to emote and we study human behavior, basically, and how to present that on the stage. And a part of that is also the, the hand symbols or sign language. And so it's not only, actually, if you look at closed captioning, you never just see the hands, but you always see the face and the torso as well. So the expression along with the mudra or the sign is important to give it meaning. So that's what we do. We give a gesture meaning with the expression and the body language. So that's the dramatic element. And we can play any character. We play male characters, female characters, animals, inanimate things, elements. Then there's nritya, which is the storytelling. So we're sort of, what I like to say, we have split personalities as we're performing because in an instant I went, might be saying, once upon a time, and then immediately I'll be the character. So I'll be the storyteller, as well as I'll immediately go into the character. Sometimes the gesture will be doing the narration, but the expression will be the character. So it's like, it's, it's instantaneous. So in that sense, we have the storyteller aspect of it, then, which is the abstract element. So basically, as dancers, we create paintings, three-dimensional paintings in space. And in Bharatanatyam, it reflects that ancient Indian aesthetic, which you see in many ancient cultures of symmetry and geometry, which is reflected probably not only in, in musical compositions, in architecture, you see very much symmetry and geometry in you know, the Colosseum or in the temples that are erected. And this is also, you see, in even community dances, like line dances, circle dances, were traditional formations. And so the geometry and symmetry you see in Bharatanatyam as well, in the lining and even the direction that the limbs will move in. 
So these are the three elements that comprise Bharatanatyam. I love hearing the connection of all of those. Hey everybody, it's Tim. My team and I work really hard to make this show meaningful for all of you, and we'd love to hear from you about what you're liking and also what you might want more of. I'm easy to find on Instagram at Moti Myers, that's M-O-T-M-Y-E-R-S, and always happy to hear from you via email, that's Timothy at TimothyMyers.com. Also, if you're enjoying what you're hearing and would be willing to leave a rating and a review, or pass on to a friend, that helps a lot. Back to the show. You do some of another kind of dancing too, don't you? You mentioned line dancing. Are you involved? I don't. Okay. I wish I could. Did it in high school, but... Okay. Just wondered if Texas had rubbed off on you in that way, but... I'm curious to go back to these three elements you're talking about. And if you can, because I very soon want to get to how we relate that to Western music like Bizet's. Mm -hmm. But for you, in the purest form of it, how does it relate to music? Um, mm -hmm. and, and how do those three centers that you talked about connect to a musical language? Yeah, so for me, coming into this production, I needed some anchor because I'm absolutely a novice in the world of opera. So I needed something, I was grasping for something that was familiar. And if you actually analyze any tradition as a collaborator, particularly with, with, with the opera, there's going to be music, so there's melody, there's lyrics or poetry, and there's rhythm. So these three elements are common to most musical traditions wherever they are in the world. And so these three were really what I used to create sort of that synergy between Bharatanatyam, which is far removed from the operatic world, and, and merge it. And because to me, once I started listening to Bizet's score, I mean, I really have fallen in love with it. I listen to it nonstop on Spotify. <laughs> And I've, I really have, have been feeling those poignant moments and the emotions in the, the singing and so on. And so that's what we are trying to bring within the music, uh, within the movement that we're doing and the signing that we're doing. So for the lyrics, we will be doing the expressive, dramatic part and the storytelling part, a narration. And so we will be playing those characters, we'll be acting out the lyrics. And in this production, we're doing a lot less of the abstract element and the rhythmic footwork and so on, because the, the, the score and the music and the opera singing is the main element, and we are, we are trying to enhance that and bring a different layer of meaning and interpretation to that. So that's, our, that's how I feel our role is in this. And you mentioned that you've been deep into the music of the Pearl Fishers. And I wonder if we could sort of start to bridge this a little bit now, just about the working style. Because what's interesting is you didn't just rest on, you know, light research into what actual, you know, what the Sri Lankan style might be. You've, you've been doing some pretty heavy every work in that regard, right, and in, in working with someone there. Yes, what I didn't want to uh, happen is uh, for us to come in and pretend like uh, Bharatanatyam is, uh, you know, Sri Lankan. So I, I wanted that respect of the Sri Lankan culture to be present in the production. And so I've been studying some Sri Lankan dance called Kandian dance. And it's from the Kandian region in central Sri Lanka from a wonderful young dancer there, Shamita Hetige. And he's been wonderful with the time difference. I've been doing the classes on Zoom at 6.30 in the morning. <laughs> but it's been a joy to work with him and just learn the basics of that style of dance. And the style of Kandian dance has um, 
some elements that I would say are similar and yet different from Bharatanatyam. One of the major differences is that there is less of the sign language and storytelling element in it. And so for those scenes, we're actually falling back to our technique, the Bharatanatyam technique. So we're sort of going to be doing a combination. And by the way, Bharatanatyam is also practiced quite heavily in, in Sri Lanka as well, but it's not an indigenous form. And so I wanted to really bring the indigenous form into it. And, and the Candian dance, by the way, was also part of the temple tradition, but it was part of the Buddhist temple tradition, because Buddhism is the prevalent and the indigenous religion there in, in Sri Lanka. That's right, and importantly to note, that's not the way it's done in pearl fishers. These ideas are collapsed a little bit. Pearl fishers is highly influenced, I would say, by both Hindu and Buddhist cultures. And so finding that kind of, like, n not using the word pejoratively, but like melange of like, this is truly a cosmopolitan place where like multiple cultures are mixing, multiple religions are mixing, people probably speak multiple dialects. There's a cosmopolitan quality to that. And in this production, I think, I think there's a lot of the Hindu influence that we see, mostly because there, there's some, I don't know, just wonderful confluence with Hindu deities and like the actual narrative and the, this kind of central love triangle that we see. And so I find that really interesting. But as we're kind of talking about it, we, so I, our initial conversations were a little bit like, I think we had a conversation near the beginning, Anu, where it was like, well, tell me what this dance does best. Tell me what, like, if someone was just, if, if someone came to one of your recitals or one of your events and you were saying what's great about it or why we should pay attention, what would you say, irregardless of smashing it together with an opera, right? Like, I just want to hear what, what your organization is about, what your art is about. And then we talked, and I think we had like about an hour-long Zoom, and I went away, and you did some maybe thinking and research, and I did some maybe thinking and research, and I, I looked at, you mentioned a few specific books and narratives, and I, you know, did a little deep dive into reading these epic poems and finding out what some of these character archetypes were. And then I came back with having looked at the score and I kind of said like, okay, these are the three places where I think we can use dance. These are the three t archetypes of dance that I think we could use. One is we could use dance as like actual narration. So at the beginning of the story of kind of feeling of like once upon a time, as you said. And that's where we're using a little bit more of this traditional narrative dramatic dance. And what we're doing is we have, and I think this is just really exciting, we have three female soloist dancers in this classical tradition, and they play a sort of dance version of our three main characters, Nadir, Zorga, and Leila. And as you were saying, oh, we have women playing all three of those roles because it's about the technique, it's about the virtuosity, it's about taking us there rather than a convincing costume or like, like this idea of realism. It's about a theatricality. It's about a theatrical or an emotional realism rather than a physical or visual realism. And then we have a second type of dance, which is the Kandian dance, which we see in the village in a different way, where we're pulling some of these new, new techniques and new gestures together. And then we have some even younger dancers who are doing kind of the sort of young acolyte role of, of learning and apprenticing in the way that Leila would have learned and apprenticed in a way. And how many dancers in total? There are, I don't even know. <laughs> a lot. Maybe, maybe like 12. Three, yeah. three five, yeah, 12. 12. Right. There's a dozen, dozen of us. <laughs> You know, this has been a really interesting collaboration, and collaboration is something we really take seriously at Austin Opera. It's a, really one of our values. And it was very interesting to observe in rehearsal last night the melding of these two languages. And the languages I'm referencing are something that's very written and something that's not written. You and I were talking about this in the green room, how I was talking about you know, these musical scores that I conduct a performance from are several hundred pages of detailed information. And you know, if there's a critical edition, somebody's gone back and done all of this work to try and mine exactly what it should be. And you were saying how that was 
you know, interesting because your tradition is completely unnotated, unwritten. It's handed down completely differently. That's true. It's an oral tradition, and so it's handed down just by spoken word. And so even when I was training in Mumbai with my guru, we would have to memorize, uh, I mean, there are written texts which are very ancient, um, like 5th century to 3rd century BC, written in Sanskrit. That's old, yes. <laughs> so these are written in the ancient language of Sanskrit. And interestingly enough, the technique for Bharatnatyam is written in poetic form. It's in, in verses because it was an oral tradition and so it's easier to memorize poetry than prose. And so it's recited. And so we had to, there's sort of a, what I call the Reader's Digest condensed version of that, mag, you know, magnum opus of called the Natya Shastra. There's a later version which is about 1000 AD and that's the book that has sort of just the gestures, the, there's eye movements. I mean, they knew their anatomy because they have eyebrow movements, they have movements of the chest, movements of the hip, movements of the feet, eyes, head, neck. So all of that is categorized and classified in this book, and we actually had to memorize many of those verses along with the demonstration, including the, the sign language is in that book. And what was, what's fascinating about this is you know, it became very apparent in rehearsal last night, the first time that we kind of put everything together, right? We had the chorus dancers principles and that we needed to find a common language <laughs> of how to work in the, in the room together, right? And mm -hmm. I thought that was such a great moment of, I don't know, I, I, my experience of it was just sort of coming up to it and being like, oh, I don't, quite know how to communicate where we're going to start that or and, and, and then and us just having to sort of be with that for a few minutes mm -hmm. and and then say okay let's do this or do that and uh, you know you both had a lot of ideas that contributed to finding that common language to that helps that helps blend these beautiful things together mm -hmm. and I think when 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 Allison was trying to express her vision of you know where we were fitting into the, the grand scheme of things, the, the documents that she passed on and the links that she passed on to me were helpful because I had to sort of look at this one and then look at this link and then listen to this and, and we were going you know, back and forth to try to fit it all together because I had no idea. I was coming in with a blank slate and it was very helpful what you had put together. So. Thank you. I, I had to sort of invent a, I don't know, I, and I feel like there's still more I could do, but I also think up to a certain point, like, it's great to prepare, and then the heat of the room, the negotiation in the room, coming together in the room, making something with kindness and respect and listening to one another, that's what this kind of experiment is actually really all about, and it is an experiment. I don't see every opera company in the United States taking a, a flying leap into the unknown like this, which is amazing and a testament to the team you have here in Austin and the audiences you have and the patrons who support it. But yeah, so I kind of had to invent like a sort of like, okay, if I were transcribing what I think is gonna be the musical start of this and kind of make almost like a, I don't know, a little flow chart. And that's, actually we were talking about this yesterday in rehearsal as well, like as a director, that's one of my kind of primary challenges is like how do I get the movie in my mind out there and how how to not be impatient with people or impatient with the process and I'm sure you hear you, you do it the same but it's with hearing like you know what you want it to feel like or when you're leading the band when you're with the orchestra and you're in those initial orchestra readings and you can hear the final result before they're playing the final result it's it's this like really thrilling gap Right. <laughs> I was just going to say, mind the gap. Yeah, the, yeah. No, that is one of the things I think as a creator is, you know, it, you're right. I mean, when I'm in rehearsal, I have something in my head that may or may not end up being what happens, right? I mean, I may change my mind because I hear something that's a better idea. But, you know, and then kind of trying to take everything in front of you and, and, and bring it together in a way that makes something greater than the sum of the parts. 
that's absolutely it. And one thing we haven't mentioned yet is like there's this amazing cast, and we have really wonderful singers here in Austin singing these roles, and they're all debuting them, and they all come with some level of musical and dramatic interpretation. And I don't know about you, but like as a director, I certainly take a kind of like farmer's market approach where it's like, I've got a kind of plan. I think I want to make pasta. But if I go out there and, you know, like every zucchini is mushy, I might change my plan. Like, and when I show up, I'm serious. <laughs> when I show up and we meet the cast and like, okay, this is an example. Will Liverman is a great, nice guy. I can't have him be a baddie from the minute he starts. I've got to watch a story about a good man becoming a bad guy, rather than, he's not gonna walk on stage and say like, ooga booga, arg, like, you know, but I have seen productions of the Pearl Fishers where that's successful. And you have to kind of meet people where they are, and that to me is like the, the, the pleasure and challenge of, of insisting on doing things live and working in, in these forms. Yeah, that is the magic of this live art form that we do, right? A new, I mean, what you're bringing to this production just adds so much dimension and so many more layers for which we're really grateful to, to broaden the way that this story is told in a really authentic way. So as you can see, and also we don't do plug and play opera, <laughs> um, and that's because it's for you and we do iconic artistic experiences for our audience and we're grateful for your support and I would like to thank Anu and Allison for joining me and bringing such a dimension to this conversation. Thank you. And um, so we will see you at Pearl Fishers and I do want to encourage you to bring guests. Yeah. Um, again, these are something you see the work that goes into it, the passion um, involved with the, the creative team and the cast and the orchestra and the chorus and the dancers and, and, and this is something that is done for you. It is curated for you in that moment and that is the only time it will happen. It's not a predetermined outcome of a recording. It's something that we do and we take risk when we do it for you. Performing is a risky business. I've got some stories for you about that. Yeah. <laughs> So keep that in mind and please share this with others. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Listening on Purpose, hosted by me, Timothy Myers. I hope you're enjoying our deep dive into the world of listening and that you're finding it useful in your life. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the show, please share it with others and leave a rating and review. That really helps. You can visit listeningonpurpose.com for show notes and to subscribe to our email newsletter, which includes special episode highlights, more information about our guests, advance notice of some upcoming special events, and other news. You can find out more about me at timothymyers.com and from there connect with me on social media platforms like Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Listening on Purpose is a production of Extra Musical. Executive producers are Meredith Carter of Maduras Media and yours truly. Creative strategist is Julie Fiore. Listening on Purpose is edited by Brian Baltashevitz for Balto Creative Media. Our original music was composed by DJ Spar and performed by DJ and Kimberly Spar. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time for Listening on Purpose. Thank you.